Good morning. Hear the word of the Lord to us from the first six verses in Paul's letter to the Philippians. Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. In view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now, for I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Well, good morning. Isn't it great to be together? It's the body of Christ. Celebrating the Lord together. One of the greatest things about the body of Christ is that God in his wisdom has brought together people from all different backgrounds, different races, different socioeconomic levels, different personalities, and bonds us all together in the body of Christ. It's a wonderful thing. But one of the most difficult things about the body of Christ is that God calls people from all different backgrounds, all different races, all different socioeconomic levels, all different personalities, and expects us to love one another. It's not easy, is it? It's a challenge. So, question for us is, how do we do that? How do we get along with and really stay in community with such a diverse body of people who are so different and see life so differently from the way we do? It is a challenge. And I will say, just sharing my heart, it's, it's so painful for me at times to see some of the discussions I've had with people here at Cole, some of which have left the church because they just can't seem to stand being in a church with other people who voted for so-and-so, you fill in the blank. It works both ways, right? Or who offended me for some reason, or who think certain ways, or who have certain opinions, who have somehow hurt my feelings, Therefore, they've left the church. If we've been Christians for very long, the reality is we've each been hurt. We've each been offended. We've each been upset by other Christians and what they've done in their immaturity, in their sinfulness even. We can just walk away, and some do. But that's really to our loss and to the loss of the whole body of Christ Or we can learn to love one another and stay in community in a way that releases the life of Christ in us as the body of Christ. Today we're beginning a new study in the book of Philippians, as you've heard. We have had a great study through the book of Isaiah through chapter 39. But this is our summer break. We're digging into the book of Philippians. And then in the fall, we'll pick up with Isaiah 40 and continue in Isaiah. But 
Philippians is a wonderful book with many, many marvelous sub-themes like rejoicing in the Lord, like humility, like living for Christ, and etc. But the overall theme as we see it is unity, learning to live in gospel-centered community together, and how our community comes from living for Christ. You see, there was some major conflict going on, as we'll see in the book of Philippians, in, in that church in Philippi. So Paul writes this letter to encourage them to love one another. And as he does so, he encourages us to learn to love the difficult and challenging people that God has put in our lives and that we will be in relationship with no matter what church you go to, right? (laughs) So let's pray and then dig into this book together. Lord, thank you for your word being so true to life. And we confess as we enter this study in the book of Philippians that we can relate to the Philippians. We struggle sometimes with other believers and how to love them, how to have a proper attitude towards them. So, Lord, may your Holy Spirit use this book to speak to our hearts that we might be people, a community unified in you that loves each other well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we dig into this book, let's look a little bit at just kind of the background. The establishment of the church at Philippi is recorded in the book of Acts, chapter 16. And as you recall, if you know the story, Paul is traveling. He's established churches through the area of what is now Turkey. And and he's going back to visit those churches. But the Holy Spirit says, no, you can't go that way. And then he has a vision of a man from Macedonia who says, please come help us. So Paul takes that vision and heads to the chief city of Macedonia, which is Philippi. It was a major Roman city of the day. I just want to show you a picture of what it looks like today, the ruins that are there. Some of us traveled and visited walking in the footsteps of Paul in 2013. And there's also, besides this, there's a a big auditorium. There's all kinds of things that are left. It was a major Roman city from the time of Mark Antony when he defeated Cassius and Brutus in a big battle in this area. He established the city as a Roman city. And so there were many Roman soldiers that had retired there. It was a city in which there were many Roman gods that were being worshipped. Paul shows up in the city and he looks around and as was his typical way of approaching a city, he looked for the Jews first. But there weren't even 10 men to establish a Jewish synagogue in Philippi. So he went down by the river and found a place of prayer, which this is a picture of the actual river there that is very possibly where he met Lydia, who becomes the very first convert in the entire area of Europe, the very first one. So in Acts chapter 16, I just want to read a couple of verses that describe what happened there where it says, On the Sabbath day, starting in verse 13 of Acts 16, on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. 
A woman named Lydia from the city of Theatara, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So Paul converts Lydia, and it's the beginning of the church in Philippi. Then a little further in Acts 16, Paul is uh, walking back and forth and sharing the gospel, and he runs into a young girl who is demon-possessed, whose masters were using her to make money because she would prophesy for them. Well, Paul got irritated because she kept saying, I know who you are. You are Paul. You're a follower of Christ. And he got irritated, so he cast out the demons. Well, the men were really upset about that because it took away their chance for profit. So they created a big stir, a riot, got Paul arrested, and Paul and Silas, remember, end up in jail in Philippi. But then as they're singing hymns, they they get beaten, but they're singing hymns. In the middle of the night, there's an earthquake. The doors are opened. They could have left, but they stay. And the jailer comes, sees what happened, and is converted with his entire family. So that's the beginnings of the church in Philippi. According to tradition, first it was Lydia that was converted, and then the young girl was converted, according to tradition, and then the jailer himself. It's sort of ironic to me that the vision was of a man of Macedonia, and yet here on Mother's Day, as we celebrate women and their incredible influence, we're looking at a church in which women were perhaps more influential, at least in the establishment of the church, than maybe any other in the New Testament. Here's Lydia and this young girl, the jailer's family, and so it's pretty ironic. And then as you look further on, In the book of Philippians, you see, actually, there were two women that were very influential, but in a negative way. Chapter 4, verse 2 says this, I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement and also the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. You see, it's a reminder to me as this conflict is going on that Paul, one of the main reasons he wrote this letter was to deal with this conflict between these two women that was going on. And I think it's just a good reminder to us that when we have conflict with someone else in the body of Christ, there's hurts and there's resentments. We often tend to think, well, it's just between the two of us. But notice the impact it was having on the church in Philippi. And it's a reminder that no conflict is just between us. It affects the whole body of Christ. And it's a reminder that we need to learn to love one another well in the body. So there's this diverse church that gets established with people from all over. And that makes for the possibility of conflict, right? So Paul sets the stage for all he's going to say in this book by his introduction that we'll look at this morning by showing his example that the key or one of the keys to unity in the body of Christ is how you view yourself and how you view other people, all other people in the church family. 
And if we will view ourselves the way Paul does here, and if we will view others the way he does the body of Christ at Philippi, I think it'll go a long ways to helping us love each other, especially those challenging people around us. So let's begin with how Paul views himself and what we learn from that. Begins this way, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus. Now, Paul wrote 13 letters in the New Testament that we know of for sure. Usually, when he introduces himself, he introduces himself as what? An apostle. You know, a position of authority. Twice, he introduces himself using this word slave and an apostle, bondservant and an apostle. But this is the only place in all his letters he uses only the term bondservant or slave. Doulos is the Greek word to introduce himself. Now, why would he do that? What's significant about that? Well, I think it's very significant. I think it's very purposeful by Paul. Remember, what is a slave in the Roman Empire? About half the Roman Empire were slaves. Most of them had been captured in war and made slaves. Some of them became slaves through debt or some of them were born into slavery. But a slave in the Roman Empire had no rights at all. No rights in a court of law. No rights before a judge. None at all. They obviously couldn't vote. They were considered property of their master. They had to rely completely on the care of their master and for their master to defend them. They would never, ever consider demanding their own rights, ever. If you came to them and said, hey, why don't you stand up for yourself? You're being mistreated. They would laugh in your face. They would say, you're trying to get me killed? (laughs) No way. I'm a slave. You see, this, I think, is very important that Paul uses this term to describe himself. Because isn't it true that most conflict in the church is because we feel like our rights have been violated? You've hurt me. You've violated my rights. You've offended me. You weren't fair to me. I deserve to be treated better. But a slave would never think those thoughts. A slave has no rights. But we've been so trained by our culture to think in terms of rights, haven't we? That we should never be treated wrongly, and I deserve better. And so we tend to react in that way when someone offends us or hurts us. But, you know, think about our culture, how it's trained us. We're all about rights. We've been taught through the Constitution there are certain inalienable rights that we all have. But our culture today is taking that even Further and further and further. You know, one of the latest arguments politically is, does everyone have the right to health care? But uh, that's a legitimate argument. But I, but I think the argument keeps getting taken further and further. And in people's minds, I think one of the rights that people are starting to hang on to in our culture today is that I have a right to never be offended by anyone else. I have a right to never be offended by anyone else. Now, think how absurd that is. (laughs) And yet, our culture is pushing that so that it's become so extreme that you see it 
as people react to any little thing and they try to shut down anybody who disagrees with me, with them, because I don't like it and therefore I'm offended and you don't have a right to offend me. Think about some of the things that have happened recently on college campuses. For example, on Berkeley, which which was the place where the whole free speech movement began, right? Free speech. And yet recently they had a conservative speaker scheduled to come and the students rioted and they wouldn't let her speak and they wouldn't let her come. Why? Because they didn't agree with what she said and that offended them. How absurd that is. It's absurd that our culture has gone so far that my rights are most important and whatever offends me, then I need to somehow shut down or do away with. Well, that's our culture. But I'm really concerned that that attitude has permeated the church to some degree as well and is causing harm in our relationships with one another. Where we, we just begin to feel that anybody who offends me or disagrees with me politically or some other way, I need to react to and even shut down because they've offended me. That's not the way of Christ, brothers and sisters. Now, I will say, apparently similar things were happening in Philippi, and that's why Paul reacts this way. And that's why Paul says, I see myself this way. And the encouragement, I think, by example, is that, and we should see ourselves this way, as slaves of Christ, as bondservants of Christ who have no rights, who are not here to defend ourselves and be offended by everybody who disagrees with us, but rather we are trusting ourselves to him, our master, who will defend us, and therefore we just seek to obey him. And if you say something that hurts me, then I learn to forbear and let it go because there are more important things I am focused on. It's interesting that this word doulos, this word slave, only occurs twice in the book of Philippians here to describe Paul and his attitude about himself. And the only other place is in 2.7 where Paul uses it to describe Jesus and his attitude where it says he who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He let go of his rights. but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, doulos, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. That's our example. That's how we're called to view ourselves in the body of Christ, to follow in Paul's footsteps, but more importantly, in Jesus's footsteps. So that's how we're to view ourselves. How are we to view others by Paul's example? Well, notice, first of all, he calls them saints. And notice a key word in these first few verses. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. Paul apparently wants us to make sure that we see that everyone we see in the body of Christ, the people that are easy to get along with, the people that are not so easy, are all saints. They're all saints. 
They're all chosen by God, recipients of his grace. They're all commonly, we're all in this together. We're all made holy by God. We have common ground. And therefore, that bonds us together because of what God's done in our lives. What is a saint? The word simply means, it's from the word holy. It's the same root, but it means to be set apart by God for his purposes and made holy. Now, what does that mean? It means the Holy Spirit's been planted in you. When you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit is planted in you. And in the innermost being of who you are, you're a new creation. And you are made holy by his presence in you. Now, every one of us has to learn to live that out, right? (laughs) And we're all in process, which means we're going to fail a lot. But the reality is the deepest reality in the way God views us, every one of us, is as saints, set apart by him. And notice it says, including the overseers and deacons. He wants to make sure even the leaders don't feel excluded. Everybody's included in this. This is important. No one's left out. No exceptions. All the church, even those who are struggling, like Euodia and Syntyche and others, are saints. Now, I just want you to think for a minute about how that changes things. Someone says something that offends you. And you're tempted to react that mean person. (laughs) But then you think, wait a minute, that person is chosen by God, set apart, a recipient of grace, is a saint. And yeah, they got some ways to go to express that. But but that is what is their core identity as a person. So you know what? Yeah, they're still, they fail, but God's working in them. And so you know what? I'm going to let it go. And I'm going to maintain unity because I don't want anything to divide us because we are in this together. So I think if you have that perspective, it changes your perspective and your attitude, and it makes it easier to let go of the hurt and stay in relationship. So first, Paul says, view the other people as saints. View one another, that person next to you as a saint. And secondly, view them as partners in the gospel. Verse 5, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. That word participation, the actual word there is koinonia. It's fellowship. It's this sharing in the gospel, this partnership in the gospel. It's the idea of shared life. We're in this together. We have a shared purpose. I think what it's saying is that When you come to Christ, you are called to a greater purpose, which is now you're called to be the light of the world, to bring the light of the gospel into the dark world in which we live. And you are all partners. You are all teammates in this, Paul says. You see, he's trying to encourage them to see themselves as all on one team. All on one team. Many of you have been on short-term missions trips. And I'm struck when I've been on those kinds of trips, and many of you, as I've heard talked to you about those trips, you know, you get together and you're there for a common purpose and you spend this intense time together and it bonds you together. Why? You may be really different, but it bonds you together because you have a common purpose. You are partners, you are teammates, and it bonds your hearts together. So many come back and they go, wow, that was so intense. How come we don't have that kind of intense fellowship here 
When you're in that kind of situation, serving for the same purpose, you overlook a lot of the common irritations that we feel towards one another because you have a greater purpose. Paul is saying, you know what? We're like that all the time. We're on a common team. We're all here on this earth to live as partners of the gospel. When I was growing up, I'm one of four boys. We love sports. And we loved getting together with this other family, the Raleigh family, because they had seven boys and no girls. But when you take four Kramers and seven Raleigh's, man, we could play any game. We'd play baseball together and football and ultimate Frisbee and soccer, and we we just had a great time together. But the Raleigh's, I could say the Kramers too, but the Raleigh's in particular had a lot of conflict with each other. (laughs) And a couple of them would be going at it. And I learned after a couple times not to jump in and defend one of them. (laughs) Yeah, guess what would happen? They would both turn on me. And not just the two of them, you know, then the other brothers would get involved. Why? Because they had a common bond that they were not going to let anything really get between them. Yeah, they would have spats, but they would work it out. And, but they weren't going to let me intrude on their oneness. You know, there's a oneness in the body of Christ that we should let nothing intrude. One, one other picture for you that I like is uh, I'm a fan of the Lord of the Rings books and and the movies. And the first book, the first movie, is The Fellowship of the Ring. They come together, this diverse group, and think about who they are. Four hairy, short hobbits. An elf. A dwarf. And dwarfs and elves never get along. A wizard, Gandalf. And two men. Now, this is a group that would never get together except they come together for a common purpose. And that is to destroy the ring and defeat evil. Now, I'm looking out at a few hobbits, some elves, (laughs) maybe a few dwarfs, (laughs) a few wizards. Ah, You know, in other words, we're a diverse group, brothers and sisters. But God's called us together. He's called us into the kingdom of God for a common purpose that should allow us to let go some of the things that tend to divide us because together we are called to be the light of the world and to make a difference in this kingdom of God. You see, if you see everyone else as a saint and as a partner in the gospel, you're much less likely to create conflict with one another by pushing your own viewpoint on Facebook, when you know it will rile up other Christians, you'll be less likely to say things you know will offend. You will tend to overlook the normal irritations of relationships that we all face because you'll realize that person is set apart by God as a saint and that person is a partner with me, a teammate with me for the kingdom of God. So why would I hold on to a resentment or let anything divide us? Amen. The third thing he says and the last thing he says in his perspective of how to look at other people that I think will help us maintain our unity is that everyone is destined for perfection. Notice verse six, for I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ 
Jesus. Notice Paul's attitude here. God's at work in you, Philippians. Now, in the back of his mind, he knows there's conflict. He knows there's struggle. They're not perfected yet. He knows that. But what he's reminding them of, and maybe himself, is that, man, all of you, Philippians, are destined for Christ-likeness, for perfection. So by my example, Paul says, view each other as destined for perfection. That person I'm struggling with, that person who maybe sinned against me even, they're going to be absolutely perfect one day. Sure, they're in process now, but so am I. So I can back off and let God do his work in their lives, looking forward to the day when that person and when I will truly be more like Jesus. Now, I can maybe hear some of you out there kind of thinking, yeah, but they sinned against me. They're so immature. But in the big picture, they're just in process. And God calls us to forbear with one another and be patient with one another and give each other time to grow. My grandson, Obi, is going on 10 months old. He's, he's just about ready to walk. He loves climbing, you know, pulling himself up on things and balancing and almost standing by himself. And he loves having you hold his hands and just walk around. But he's not quite ready to do it by himself. And you know what? Every time he stands up and then tries to do it and falls down, I get really angry at him. No, I don't. (laughs) I like, oh, good try, Obi. Come on, let's try it again. Let's go. I don't expect him to have it all together yet. I don't expect him to be walking yet. And I want to encourage him along the way. Oh, if we could only view one another that way. Yeah, you're not there yet, but you know what? God's working in your life. Let me see how to encourage that in you. Let me see how to help you along the way. I thank God you're moving ahead with him. You see, I cheer Obi-Wan. And that's really what Paul is doing with these struggling and immature Philippians. And I think the encouragement is we can do the same with one another. Do you find yourself struggling to love other Christians because of their political views or maybe their lack of zeal? Why aren't they so excited about what I am and what God needs to do in this area? And why aren't they as zealous as I am? Or do you struggle with other Christians because of their personality quirks or their immaturity or their blatant struggles with sin or maybe how they've hurt you? Our natural tendency, and, and I admit I'm, I'm this way, I, t- I can be critical, is to kind of take a red marker and highlight their faults. But I think the message of this passage is this. We have a choice. We can focus on their faults. We can let that divide us. Or we can choose to see them as Paul sees the struggling Philippians. As recipients of God's grace, as saints that God has chosen and set apart for his kingdom. And that deep inside their real identity is holiness. They just still need to learn to really live that out. And as partners in the gospel, we're teammates together for a greater cause, which is to bring the gospel to this dark world. 
And as people who are destined for perfection, yeah, they're not there yet, but God's at work in them and he will finish that work and someday all that stuff that's in them and in me will be gone, all that bad stuff. And so I can be patient and encourage them along the way. And perhaps most important, we have a choice to see ourselves as bondservants of Jesus Christ. A person who has no rights, ultimately. I've given those over to him, and I'm trusting him to defend me and stand up for me. He is making me who he wants me to be, and therefore, I don't have to take offense at what others say. I don't have to hold on to resentments. I can let it go and trust my heart to him. You see, that is Paul's example, but even more importantly, that's Jesus's example to us. As one who saw himself as a bondservant, chose to set apart, set aside his rights for the sake of love. I skipped a couple verses, verses three and four, and I'll close with this. Notice what Paul says in verses three and four. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy with every prayer for you all. Now, wait a minute, Paul you know they're struggling. Yeah, but because of how he views them and God's work in their lives, he's able to be thankful for them and to pray for them with joy for God to bless them. And maybe, brothers and sisters, that's our litmus test to really tell whether we are viewing each other the way we should. That person who's offended you, that person who's hard to get along with, are you able Are you able to thank God for them? To thank God for his work in their lives and what they will become someday? And are you able to pray for God's blessing on them with joy? You see, if you're not, maybe it's time to change your perspective of yourself and of them as well. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this book of Philippians that will be a wonderful tool of yours to help us learn to love each other well. We confess, Lord, that uh, sometimes we run into people in the body of Christ that are hard for us to love. But, Lord, may you change our hearts and our view of ourselves and our view of that person so that we can remain as teammates, moving ahead for the purpose of the gospel that you, Lord, might get all the glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.